Two boys got into one of those my dad's better than your dad's arguments. And one boy bragged, my dad can beat up your dad. And the other kid hollowed out that threat by saying, so what? So can my mom. (laughs) The kind of threat we prefer is like another mother's who sternly addressed her little daughter as she sat woefully shrinking into the dentist's chair as the ogre approached, forceps in hand. Now, Charlotte, if you cry, I'll never take you to the dentist again. That's like Br'er Rabbit to Br'er Fox in that Uncle Rima story. Please, Br'er Fox, please don't throw me into that briar patch. Y'all need to read your Uncle Remus. (laughs) Saul's threats are real and chilling. As we heard this week about the threat, the electronic threat that came from the student who then shot two women in the New River Valley, this is the kind of threat was death threats in a way. He wanted to bind them and bring them to Jerusalem, but then we don't know what would happen once they got to Jerusalem. We know that Saul doesn't mind death because we encounter him first as he's standing by the coats, the cloaks of people who are spectators at the stoning of Stephen, a disciple of Jesus. And Saul approved of their killing him, we're told. And then as a persecution arose in Jerusalem, Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. To preserve their important traditions, Saul and others were involved of in what may be a kind of ethnic cleansing, but it was within their ethnicity cleansing out the Jews like Stephen. Stephen believed that the biblical prophets had pointed them the way to the Messiah and that that Messiah had been born as the Son of God in Jesus of Nazareth. Paul lumped all the followers of the way, as that group was called, into one pile. They were a threat, so it didn't matter who they were. And I wonder how similar this is to the situation in North Korea where Kim Jong-un seems to have no concern for people he does not know. It's as if they were crickets used to feed his big snake. Earlier this week, Gary Samore, who is a former presidential nuclear advisor, told CNN, I think most of their threats to take military action are probably just theatrics designed to intimidate and frighten people. Saul's threats were not theatrics. He had gotten a warrant to ferret out these followers of the way, to bind them, to return them to Jerusalem, to be dealt with there by the religious leadership. It's not so different from what the Christian church did during the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition. I imagine Saul drooling like a hungry coyote over its prey. And it makes me wonder... What drove Saul? What was his motivation to get out there and want to persecute? What was it he loved so much about his traditions and his rituals that he didn't want to accept any kind of change to them at all? 
And what drives you? What gets you up in the morning? If it's the day to leave for vacation, it's not so hard to get up. If it's the day we're meeting a sweetheart for breakfast, it's easy to get up. If it's the day that we're starting at a new school or meeting someone who intimidates us, how much more do we prefer to just lie there in bed? Saul's passion was for his beloved traditions, and he would do anything, anything to eliminate something or someone standing in the way. And we have to be willing, I think, to relate to Saul in some way because there are morals that we hold dear. There are values that we hold dear, and we don't want people to change them, do we? Something dramatic needed to happen if Saul's passion was going to switch. And maybe most of us don't need a blinding light and a voice from heaven to transform us, but Saul needed something major to make a 180-degree turn and to form him or begin to form him into the likeness of Jesus. Now, for your life, you might think about something that has transformed you at some time. A time when you were heading in one direction and something happened to change it. I remember one of my aunts, I was asking her about UVA because I knew she had started school at UVA. And then she said, yeah, and then I decided to go back home and get married. And so it it changed the trajectory of her life, that one decision. A friend of mine had gained a lot of weight. His blood pressure was high and his health and his ministry were suffering. His kids were fairly young when another health crisis arose, and that's when the potential consequences sunk in. And now he counts calories, he spends time on the treadmill, he works out several times a week, he looks and feels great. Another friend was in a dead-end job but was doing her best until one person noticed something special about her, a special work ethic and offered her a position that changed her life. I talked to the the son of a former member of Calvary yesterday, just happened to run across him outside Kroger, and he has um, dealt successfully with his alcoholism that had driven him down for years. And he said he had to get to the point of desperation to make a change. But he did. He almost died. And now he's so glad that he can be an authentic person. Maybe someone has had an effect like this on you. I think in church we get to question whether that person acted alone. Or whether there was some divine inspiration. Was there a vision like Ananias experienced to say, get up and go? do this. Saul was told to get up and go to Damascus and then wait for his next instruction. It reminded me of the scavenger hunt that my friend used to do for her partner's son. She would give them one clue, 
which would cryptically lead them to the next clue and so on until they finally found the hidden prize. They loved that game. But part of the, the fun of it is the mystery. And sometimes we don't claim that mystery as well as we could. We don't enjoy the mystery. We like the answers. We like to know what's happening next. But here's Saul, blinded and just waiting. He's not even eating. He's just waiting. wonder how much he loved his little game. What makes us respond to Jesus' instruction to get up and go? What I think I know about humans is we don't like to be pushed, right? Don't push me. Don't tell me what to do. Don't try to motivate me from behind. Let me be inspired. Inspiration motivates us more. For instance, if you grew up with parents who smoke or drank too much, you might be inspired to do the opposite. Thinking about marriage, a future groom is inspired by the way his parents love and take care of each other and wants to show that same love and commitment to his future wife as completely and as generously. Journalist William Allen White met President Theodore Roosevelt in 1897 for the first time. He said, I had never known such a man as he and never shall again. He overcame me, and in the hour or two we spent that day at lunch, he poured into my heart such vision, such ideals, such hopes, such a new attitude toward life and patriotism and the meaning of things as I had never dreamed men had. After that, I was his man. One writer commented about that story, if a mere mortal can have such an effect on another What about Jesus? Can we say, I am his man, or I am his woman? Saul was stuck. He couldn't see with his eyes, and yet sometime during those three days, a new vision was emerging. It's okay for us to be in that interim time, wondering. But for for Saul, and sometimes in our situations too, someone else had to take a step. Someone else had to get up and go before Saul could. And that was Ananias. The Lord said to Ananias, get up and go. Find Saul. And Ananias bucked God. I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And now he's getting ready to do the same to us. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is an instrument whom I have chosen. He is an instrument whom I have chosen. We are instruments whom God has chosen. So we think about this 
the conversion of Saul and how dramatic it was, and may we, maybe we sometimes feel bad about our conversion and how undramatic it was. We don't know about Ananias' conversion. How was he converted? And yet, he still, even as a disciple, had to open himself up to be used as an instrument. Several weeks ago, we had two flutists playing. I was looking for Miss Janice. And, and when Janice plays her instrument during worship, she has to hold her mouth right. She has to breathe into the metal flute and press certain keys for the instrument to make a beautiful noise. And if you think about it, each of us are sort of like God's wind instruments, that God breathes God's spirit in through us, and only with that breath, only with that spirit can we make a beautiful noise. And so think this week about your passion. Think about what inspires you. Think about what pulls you forward to being the kind of disciple that God is calling you to be. What makes you get up and go? And sometimes that getting up and going calls us to let go of other things in the process. So letting go, dealing with the funny looks we get from other people, Praying for God's help to find our passion. All these things are a part of becoming who God has created us to be. So I'd like for us to pray for God's help in finding our passion and then pray for that strength to get up and go and consider that by doing so, we might help God create another Apostle Paul. Let's pray. God of grace, God of power, God of glory, and God of gifts. You have chosen us as your instruments, and we pray that we would open ourselves to being fully used by you and your Holy Spirit to reach out to others and share your love in Jesus' name. Amen.